from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll. Here, we talk about serial killers, as well as delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. I come at this from a psychological perspective, so we look at past family members, childhood experiences and other things that could have contributed to these people evolving into who they've become. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Or like, share, subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. Today's podcast was voted for by patrons, and it is going to be on both James Holmes and Nicholas Cruz, comparing and contrasting the two and the overall analysis of who they were and the crimes they committed. So let's jump right in. In part one, we discussed James Holmes. If you haven't listened to that one, I suggest it. We learned that on both sides of his DNA were kind of equal parts gifted intelligence and mental illness. His father's twin sister developed what was described as a serious mental illness early and had been mentally disabled from a young age, suspected to be schizophrenia. James's paternal grandfather, though it was obvious that he was quite highly intelligent, had also suffered from some form of psychiatric issues his whole life. It was said that those issues became more severe later in life. He was actually once admitted to the Monterey Peninsula Community Hospital for, quote, disabling obsessive-compulsive disorder, end quote. And then on James's maternal side, his grandfather had been hospitalized during his middle age for depression and psychosis, and he ultimately died when James was only four years old. The research showed that James had at least three pretty close relatives that had mental illness severe enough that they required hospitalization. It was also said that he had some relatives that had a problem with alcohol. So that mostly covers the genetic component. So if we look at the environmental component with James, we really see zero issues. His parents were at the very least upper middle class. Both worked, were respected in their fields, provided a fantastic childhood for their children, and made sure James and his sister knew that they were absolutely and unconditionally loved. 
I found no evidence whatsoever that James had been abused or neglected in any way whatsoever. His parents treated him to wonderful family vacations, you know, all of the things. As I said in part one, a childhood some of us could never even fathom. Now, James had fears as a child about scary things happening, but I think most all children do. Many are scared of the dark or of a monster being in their closet. His monster was in the wall. Mine chased me around my childhood living room in my dreams. So while the source material pointed his childhood fearfulness out, my opinion and mine alone is that I just don't feel it was really out of the realm of normal. The family then moved when James was about seven years old, but again, the source material indicated that he did get along with his peers. He was described as this respectful, patient, and kind kid by his teachers. After a year or two, he began to isolate a bit, wanting to be left alone in his room to play video games. And while a lot of kids do this, it seems reasonable that James's parents sought out the guidance of a counselor, you know, just to make sure all was well. Many people tend to glaze over the stress and worry parents have over their first child, their guinea pig child, as I jokingly call it. No one knows perfectly how to handle every situation, no matter how many books first-time parents read. But parents also know their children, and if their instincts are telling them they should be concerned, then that's not a bad thing. So the counselor again said that they believed he was fine, but that perhaps the parents could reevaluate their parenting or disciplinary strategies so they would be on the same page. The impression I got was that the mother was more of the disciplinarian and the father was perhaps less so. He would let more things go because he saw his son was introverted much like he was and thought things were fine, as would I. At 12, the family moved back to San Diego, and this seems to be when something kind of broke within James. And again, we already know his story from high school back to infancy. He was a very anxious child and teenager, seemed to be fearful of people overall, and was having intrusive thoughts about people being harmed, such as a nuclear bomb, to levitating saws, injuring and killing people. More and more, he preferred solitude, and his awkwardness around others made the others feel awkward, and he could sense that, which is mighty insightful for him, might I say, all things considered. The anxiety of it all culminated into him freezing, as in fight, flight, or freeze. He would freeze. He was angry and later admitted that if he let his anger get ahead of him, it would be very bad for others around him. The girls in his high school found him attractive and would flirt, but he said he had no interest in any of that at the time. Some things that experts thought regarding James, that he might be on the autism spectrum. The slight regression in toddlerhood is one of the markers, and James certainly did that. Some people on the spectrum learn very quickly, yet have trouble communicating and applying what they know in everyday life and adjusting to social situations. It very much seems that James struggled with this as well, and as I said in James's podcast, I don't know that he was officially diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, but the behaviors displayed could certainly at least look that way. Could we say maybe traits? Maybe he had traits. 
Another disorder that James was diagnosed with is schizoid personality disorder, which is a condition where a person shows very little, if any, interest and ability to form relationships with other people. It's very hard for the person to express a full range of emotions. If someone has schizoid personality disorder, well, they may seem as keeping to themselves or rejecting others. They may not be interested in or able to form close friendships or romantic relationships. And because they do not tend to show emotion, it may appear that they do not care about others or what's going on around them. Some symptoms of schizoid personality disorder are similar to autism spectrum disorders, which could very well explain why I don't believe he was ever given the diagnosis of autism. Schizoid personality disorder also have similarities with other disorders, but I think we can feel quite safe in agreeing that he had schizoid personality disorder. Intrusive thoughts include imagery that is violent, sexual, or feels, quote, wrong to a child. Other times, worries about worst-case scenarios might come up again and again. Kids with intrusive thoughts may feel distressed, anxious, or ashamed. They may not understand why the thoughts are happening. And because the thoughts feel out of control, children may dread having more and try to avoid them. Intrusive thoughts are sometimes a symptom of OCD, which can show up as early as 7 or 8 years old and as late as the teens or early 20s. So this jives with James in that he began, or this seemed to manifest, at the age of 10. So during college, James spiraled. He finally had his first girlfriend, and he seemed to really like her, but she just didn't want anything serious. He had very disturbing conversations with her and one or two other rare friends about his thoughts about killing people and his theory about, quote, human capital and how this translates to a kind of mental scorecard in that if he took a life, he would gain one point, I guess you could say, of human capital. He began having visual hallucinations along with delusions, though he later said he did not have auditory hallucinations but he would see dancing or violent shadow people, as an example. Now, James voluntarily sought out counseling because he knew the violent thoughts were accumulating to a point, and he didn't want to act them out. The counselor sent him to a clinician, who then brought in another clinician so that she could get a second opinion along with hers. It was noted that he had a very hard time maintaining eye contact and that it was obvious that he was withholding information. He was prescribed an antidepressant, and when he came back for another appointment, he said the meds were making a slight dent, so to speak, but he was still having overwhelming thoughts of killing people, and he admitted to a friend, separate from the clinician, of course, that he was having paranoid delusions. And then he began planning his, quote, mission, and we all know what he went on to do. So in the case of Nicholas, and that was part two of this three-part series. If you haven't listened to Nicholas's, go back and give it a goo. But his circumstances, or the circumstances of his birth, were the polar opposite. He was born addicted to crack cocaine and alcohol. From all of the source material I read, it would seem that there were some mental things going on on his maternal side, but what exactly, we just don't know. His mother was violent and had serious addiction problems, which I think we can all agree contributed to her criminal behavior. 
and that's not accounting for any genetic lottery numbers he won from the paternal side either, because we have no way of knowing who his father is. Now, if his father had a criminal record and DNA was done, well, then we could find out. But it doesn't seem like that is any level of a priority. So when it comes to the possible genetic component, we have little to nothing by way of information. Nicholas was adopted by a loving couple who were financially well off, like James, and maybe even more so. Nicholas's parents adored him, and he wanted for nothing. But Nicholas began showing signs of, you know, pretty serious issues, we'll say, from about the age of three. He would be diagnosed with conduct disorder, which we went over again in the last podcast. Now, if you remember, the psychologist that visited with James back in his youth also put in his paperwork that he had conduct disorder, but that psychologist stated that that term was used to get the insurance to pay for the visit and that James didn't really display behaviors associated with conduct disorder. Okay, so I'm not going to mentally list that under James's umbrella, if you will. At four years old, it was observed that Nicholas had severe language and behavioral issues, whereas James didn't seem to have any issues of any kind with these. At six years old, Nicholas's adoptive father passed away, which was a devastating blow, of course. With James, only just a bit older than Nicholas, was uprooted and moved away from all of his friends and the relationships he had developed over the years, and that, too, was a devastating blow. Nicholas suffered greatly from anxiety and needed constant reassurance from his adoptive mother that she would not abandon him at school, that she would always be there to pick him up. James, too, suffered with crippling anxiety at a young age. So Nicholas struggled terribly with impulse control at school and had been held back to the point that he was two years older than all of his classmates. His reading and writing came in well below the levels he should have been at. James, on the other hand, absolutely excelled in school as a youngster. Nicholas had to be disciplined several times and have a constant eye kept on him, whereas James was described as a leader among the gifted, if you remember. James was described as polite, kind, introverted, of course, but all-around pleasant youngster. Nicholas's teachers could not use any of those words to describe him while in school. He used profanity openly and drew completely unacceptable pictures of profane things on his work. He acted out obnoxiously and then admitted to doing so just for the attention. Nicholas's behavior in school seemed, at least to me, to be very negative. He knew what was expected of him, even something as simple as coming to class on time, and he had a total disregard for authority. His impulse control was extremely low. James was the opposite, and his positive behavior could always be counted on by his teachers. Nicholas had violent thoughts about hurting people, as did James, but the difference between them is that James's seemed to be intrusive thoughts, thoughts he could not control, whereas Nicholas seemed to more fantasize about hurting people, like purposeful thoughts. So accidental versus purposeful in a sense. But as far as I found, James didn't take to social media to post about his beginning to acquire guns or brag about this, that, and the other. He was quite withdrawn and quiet, he kept his troubling thoughts 
at least for the most part, to himself. Of course, we know that he was having paranoid delusions and would have felt he couldn't talk about it. Nicholas, on the other hand, took to social media to post selfies with his acquired weapons to brag about his wares and left comments on posts about how he was going to be the next school shooter. So for the most part, James kept his plans for his mission quiet and on the down low, though the couple of people James kept in communication with were aware that he was having concerning thoughts. So this gives us a sense that with these two, We have James planning, but keeping focused, whereas Nicholas seemed pretty open, nay, outspoken, about his desire to carry out his plan. As our beloved Shakespeare put it in his opening line to Romeo and Juliet, which, side note, I pretty much have memorized, two houses, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene, two boys brought up in privilege, raised in an enviable environment by two parents who loved them very, very much. Two boys that had some things going on in their bloodlines that could very well have contributed to behavioral displays. Two sets of parents that did notice some concerning behaviors and sought out professional help. Two boys with very concerning levels of anxiety. Two boys whose peers did notice that they were, well, different. But that's where the similarities end. Nicholas was born addicted. The chemicals his biological mother put into her body while he was growing inside of her quite clearly damaged him and set him up for a very difficult life. His list of diagnoses and developmental hurdles were most likely caused by her lack of consideration for her fetus. But we will leave a bit of room for possible genetics. James had every chance as a fetus to grow into a healthy and happy baby. No crack cocaine or alcohol or nicotine exposure that we know of. Where James succeeded in impulse control, scholastic aptitude, and peer-to-peer relationships, Nicholas severely struggled. James grew to suffering from disturbing intrusive thoughts that he did not want to have. Nicholas actively sought out fantasizing about disturbing scenarios. James at least seemed to have some level of awareness that something was going on within him that wasn't normal and admitted to two friends, at least two friends, that he was having paranoid delusions. Nicholas seemed to kind of delight in advertising his disturbing thoughts, you know, coming across as nearly brazen, if you will. Now, both, nearing the time of their crimes, had been on the radar of professionals who were going through the steps they were trained to use to try to help these boys. Both sets of parents were told that more consistent discipline would help the boys, and both didn't completely follow that. The difference is that James had purposefully sought out psychological help later, while Nicholas had no such intentions to wanting help. But the takeaway is that both had histories of getting professional help. They hadn't been just, you know, thrust into the world having to raw dog their way through their troubles. Nicholas murdered 17 people and injured many more. James murdered 12 people and also injured many more. Both began collecting weapons, namely guns, in pursuit of the violent thoughts they were both having. James being tormented by his and Nicholas reveling in his. James was on a mission. Nicholas was on a crusade. 
James was officially diagnosed with schizotypal personality disorder, but his actions were calculated. He told experts that he did feel guilt over the little girl he killed, and that was why he purposefully chose a midnight showing of a PG-13 movie to, quote, minimize child fatalities, as he put it. He openly admitted to knowing it was wrong to kill children or leave children parentless. This speaks volumes to me. In Holmes's kind of skewed worldview, each life he took was worth a point, adding value to his own life. If his life had value, he reasoned, then he wouldn't have to kill himself. But he said he never wanted to build life points by taking the lives of children. So disordered and delusional thinking, to be sure. Nicholas had either conduct disorder or oppositional defiant disorder. So conduct disorders in childhood are also associated with a significantly increased rate of mental health problems in adult life, including antisocial personality disorder. Up to 50% of children and young people with a conduct disorder go on to develop antisocial personality disorder. And if you've been with me for any amount of time, you are well versed in ASPD. So Nicholas went out of his way to say things that he knew would be absolutely shocking to anyone he was communicating with, including sharing horrifically racist views. But again, some of that, I feel, was for the shock value. I mean, his brother was half black, right? James seemed to reach out to a couple of friends, but for the most part, you know, he kind of kept it all inside so as to spare people what he knew was not normal thinking. Both plotted and planned their mass murders, but coming at these decisions from very two different sides. In both of these cases, nature played the biggest role. There were very little issues with the nurture aspect, you know, the childhood environment, which seems to lack any evidence of abuse or neglect of any kind. So guys, here's the part where I have to have an uncomfortable conversation with you guys that I really don't like getting into because it causes so much turmoil and I do not want to hear the arguments in the comments. I will delete stuff if it gets too heated. I really don't want to hear it. This is just my opinion. You are free to give me your opinion, but I'm not arguing with people, okay? So here we go. What is the solution? I've been on this rock a good number of years, guys, and I've listened to all of the debates about gun control and yes, I do listen to all sides of any argument. I find it incredibly important that no matter what side of the fence you're on, you should listen very closely to the other side. Okay. After the last two podcasts, I've also gotten a lot of questions about the U.S.'s obsession with guns. This is from international listeners, as well as some rather heated negative feedback about what side of the fence people perceive me to be on, on a personal level. Where I stand on these things is irrelevant. We all have valid thoughts and opinions on a great many tragedies going on in the world. So my first instinct is to wonder if we couldn't involve some of these mental and behavioral issues, we could say, and make them visible when the background check is performed when trying to purchase a firearm. It seems the easiest solution to me, you know, quote, has admitted to having thoughts of harming himself and others. So no, I cannot sell you a firearm kind of thing, right? But then you are involving health privacy laws. And without getting into all of the arguments again about tougher gun laws and all of that, 
Well, that only works when every single citizen abides by the laws, and we all know that that is not going to happen. I mean, if that were the case, we wouldn't have mass murderers, serial killers, and stalkers, and so on. So Democrat or Republican, left or right or libertarian, all of us know that people who want access to the tools needed to commit crimes, all levels of crimes, will absolutely find them because there are also people who are willing to fulfill those wants for those tools. It's all about the money and how much people are willing to compromise their own moral compass to get that money. Most of us want peace and happiness in the world and wouldn't compromise our own integrity and sense of morality to supply bad people with the tools needed to create suffering and destruction. But not all. Making guns illegal and the bad people will just buy them from the dark web as an example, or perhaps they can't get access to guns. What we in the true crime community are very painfully aware that there are an infinite amount of ways to cause harm to others that do not include guns. So what's to be done? You know, I think, and I believe most of you will agree with me, that there isn't a simple solution. Better and more cost-effective access to mental health intervention and care is key, but that's just a starter. Dealing with the literal and global pandemic of addiction is another, which at its core is just a symptom of mental health issues or suffering from any number of stimuli. Mental health issues seem to be a foundational problem. So do any of you watch The Soft White Underbelly? Because I do, and I've seen most of Mark's content in that regard. And he was actually on the Joe Rogan podcast talking about these very things. And he even says the root of the problems that he sees with the people he interviews seems to be mental health struggles and a negative childhood environment. So to reiterate, James had an idyllic childhood. Yes, there were some mental health things going on on both sides of his family, but we know that, scientifically, that does not mean that he would also suffer from the same things. Sometimes the genes are there that are just not switched on, so the genes or the propensity for that could have been there. But in his specific case, I think his genetics played a definitive role because his childhood environment was nearly pristine, okay? Nicholas had the potential to have an idyllic childhood. He had many of the same opportunities as James. You know, loving parents, monetarily privileged. His environment was good, no abuse or neglect, again, the same as James. But his biological mother exposed him to crack cocaine, alcohol, and nicotine, and it caused him some serious brain damage. And these issues left him with very little impulse control and all of the things that we've discussed. Both went on to cause unbelievable damage and destruction. They took the lives of so many innocent people and permanently altered the lives of the survivors. You know, you just, it is impossible to predict what kid is going to do what. You see certain signs and you think, oh, better watch that kid and he may never do anything. You might get a James situation where you would never think in a million years he would harm anyone and he still shot up and killed so many people. So... I don't have the solution. I really don't. I would love to hear you guys' solutions. So, you know, leave me a comment or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can come join the Serial Killing, a podcast fan page that a listener created for me. um, And we can have the discussion there. I am, again, I will delete comments that are 
way left wing, way right wing. I'm not doing that. But if you want to have a civil discussion, I am all for it because good or bad, we got to figure something out. Right, guys? So as always, thank you so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys, and have a great day. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.